All right, so as usual, if you don't have a Bible, if you forgot yours at home or if you just don't have one and you want one, please raise your hand and um, our Frontlines team can come around and give you a Bible and you can keep that. Um, I've heard that we have good connections that we can order more and more, so go ahead and keep it if you need. We're going to be reading from uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 28. So I'll give you a moment to get there. All right, let's read God's word. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of that flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive." Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all of the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of all the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are in, as Jeremiah mentioned, we're in week two of our journey. We're traveling, and so this is the final week of our traveling, which is good for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of them being we'll be back at War Memorial Hall next weekend, and then the following one is Easter weekend. But then secondly, this is the second uh, week that we've been traveling without James. And for those of you uh, that don't know who James is, James is one of the other pastors who's currently on a three-month sabbatical, and James takes care of all of the details. 
So the fact that we are all here, we made it, the chairs are set up, there's coffee out there, is really good, and we've done it. So if you would please give myself, Jeremiah, a hand. Uh, <laughs> and, and, of course, our fantastic uh, group and teams of people. Uh, we have over 200 people, actually, in a month that volunteer throughout Church of the City. And so that's just a beautiful thing. We have so many people involved uh, who really help and serve as we are the church, not a place we go. We are the church as we come together. And we serve with one another and serve each other in this uh, incredible, amazing opportunity that we have to be God's people. Uh, if you are new here, and you might be new because you're just trying to find a church community, uh, we want to welcome you. But if you're new and you're not uh, considering yourself a follower of Jesus, we're, we're thankful that you're here as well. And naturally, there have been a few things that we've done this morning that, that might be a bit confusing. Uh, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, we sometimes take for granted the things that we do, like singing or uh, long prayers or you know, telling announcements of what's going on. But these are all things that as we come together, as we're part of a family, our rhythm of the things that we do. And so we're really excited that you're here today. Uh, We're excited that we can also have an opportunity to share with you what it is that Christians believe. And so if you are a Christian, I would challenge you to consider every now and then, what is it actually that I believe? And would I actually be able to explain what I believe to somebody that doesn't know what I believe. And so this morning, through teaching, I help us explore and try to figure out a little bit more about what do we believe and what do the scriptures help us understand about what we do believe. Now, naturally, uh, Naomi read for us a section of Hebrews, and we've been studying the book of Hebrews, and it's challenging, right? If you were sitting there listening to what Naomi was reading, you're like, blood, 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 what's with all the blood? And, and then you're reading other things about eternal redemption, and you're kind of like, eternal redemption, what does that even mean? And it's confusing, and so God's word at times is, is a difficult book to read, and so it's really helpful when we can get together and begin to understand it a little bit better so that when we're on our own or when we're part of our missional communities, our groups that are scattered throughout the week, we can dig in a little bit more and learn more specifically what God's trying to teach us as as it com- when it comes to a book like Hebrews, it is a challenging one, but it is an important one for us to study. That said, I'm going to pray one more time. I'm going to ask you to, to just sit quiet. Uh, you can even, if you're a praying person, pray yourself that God would open your own heart up to what he would have you learn today and then begin to apply in your life. So let's pray. So God, I'm thankful this morning that we can be here and that we can have an opportunity to study this ancient book that has so much rich truth in it. And God, the words are large and the concepts might seem great, but God, I pray that you would help us understand the simple truth of who you are and what you've done in and through your son, Jesus. And God, if there's anybody in this room that doesn't believe this truth, that they would come to believe this truth. Thank you for your grace towards us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Uh, I've been struggling 
with this question lately in my life. And, and the question is, uh, do you actually trust me? Uh, or do you actually trust God? The me would be God asking me. Do you actually trust me? Now, if we were to get into a conversation about what it means to trust somebody or what it means to believe somebody, uh, we'd, we'd sort of explore a number of different ways. You'd probably think about maybe there's levels to trusting somebody. Like, I trust, uh, if you're a parent with a teenage child, I, I trust my 16-year-old in their G1 and me sitting beside them uh, to drive the vehicle, but I don't yet trust them to go on their own uh, uh, with the vehicle, uh, or maybe you're a student and you were in that position. I remember the first time that I drove away with my dad's uh, vehicle, and you know, they're just sort of like shaking like this, like this is maybe the worst mistake ever. Um, you, you have a different discussion about, do I actually trust somebody? And I think when it comes, for those of us that have relationships with God, we ask the question, uh, and he asks of us, do you actually trust me? Now, some of us might say, I trust them a little bit. Uh, if, if we're really honest. Some of us say, I think I trust them a lot. Uh, and then many of us, if you've been part of the Christian church, maybe it's daily deciding, okay, I'm going to trust God again today with, you know, this. Or I'm going to trust God a little bit with this. And I've been finding in my life that I have been struggling to actually give up the reins. And I know that's like a horse analogy, and probably not all of us are riding horses regularly, so I don't know why I use that, but I think you can sort of imagine that like you give up the reins to somebody else and saying, you, you drive this life or this horse for me. Like, you take it over. And I really struggle with that. Now, one of the reasons I struggle with it is I'm an Enneagram type 1, and if you don't know what the Enneagram is, there's a whole lot on it. Uh, it's a way of assessing a type of personality that you have. And an Enneagram type 1 is a perfectionist. And so perfectionist, as you can imagine, the word perfectionist, I like things done a certain way. So when I don't feel like God's doing it the way that I think it ought to be done, I don't want him to be involved. Now, some of you are like, ooh, ooh, do you ever do this? Right? I was actually having a conversation with Jesus recently where I told him to get away from me. Because I was like, I've got this backpack of my life, and I'd rather hold on to it rather than give it to you. And some of us are maybe more honest, like I'm trying to be right now, right, about it. Other of us are like, huh, do I trust him? Now, in our text today, the author of Hebrews, and for many of us that understand, if you've been here for a while, if you don't, totally fine, Hebrews is a sermon. Uh, it doesn't have all the characteristics of what are typically known as a biblical letter in the other places of the New Testament, but it's a bit more of a sermon given by a pastor. Uh, it's, it's an odd book in the Bible in that we're not really 100% sure who wrote it. We just know it's an orator, it's a pastor, it's an, it's an author. And what he's doing and what he has been doing throughout this book so far is explaining and helping his hearers understand who Jesus is. I mean, and that's a pretty important thing, right? But for these people that are hearing for some of them for the first time, others for time and time again, is that they were caught up in the religious system of Judaism. And so Judaism and the Jewish system had a certain way of doing things. And so suddenly the author is saying, because Jesus has come, our old way of doing things, they've been fulfilled, which means many of the things that you used to do, many of the traditions, many of the sacrifices, many of the rituals, they're not necessary anymore. And a large part of that ritual or that sacrificial life was sacrificing animals, having them killed, their blood spilled, they die to cover their own sins. 
And so as we're reading through, we're like, what's all this stuff about blood? What's all this stuff about animals? And so for these hearers, it's, it's, very, <laughs> it's very front of mind. Because the author is suggesting that you don't have to do these sacrifices anymore. Now we're like, thank goodness, didn't think I needed to go out and kill my pigeon today, like whatever it might be, to cover my sin. And we're, we're pretty thankful about that, right? Maybe you don't have a pigeon, maybe it's a dog or cat, but that might be a little bit too close to home for you. So you're like, I don't have to worry about doing that anymore. But for these people, if you think about it, if I want to be perfect before God, if I want to be seen as holy before God, what is it that I have to do to actually attain that? And for these people, it was living within a system of rituals and sacrifices in order to to accomplish that. So when someone comes along and says, you don't have to do that anymore, you have to decide, am I going to trust the system that I've been born into, been raised in, that all my ancestors have done? Or am I going to choose to go in a different direction? Which is significant, Right? It's significant. Now, all of us are like, yeah, but it's Jesus. For these people, though, they're still struggling with that. And so here in this text, yet again, our author, our pastor, our orator is saying, you can trust Jesus. And he gets into the details so that the people understand that he's thought through it all. That Jesus has thought through it all. If I'm going to change my practice, if I'm going to change my life, if I'm going to change the structures or the things that I trust in, you better have thought through what I'm turning my life over to. Right? It's like what any of us as a thoughtful human being would do if someone's trying to convince us of something. So this morning, our author as well is trying to convince you of trust Jesus. Now you either go, okay, and you sort of like jump in. Or you go, prove it. Show me why I ought to trust. Show me why I ought to give my life. Show me why I ought to reorient my life around this Jesus fellow that you talk so much about. And so our author is up to the task. And he says, here are three reasons that you can trust Jesus. And so I've laid them out in that way for us this morning. Three reasons, as I see in this text, why you and I can trust Jesus. Why I can actually say to Jesus, don't get away from me. But Jesus, why don't you come, be with me, walk with me, help me trust you daily. And so the first reason can be found in in Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 14. And this is the reason. You can trust Jesus because Jesus is the perfect sacrificial high priest who dies and sheds his blood for us. Now, you might be saying perfect sacrificial high priest. What do, you, what do you mean by this? And again, this goes to the words the Jewish system in which they had a high priest who would regularly make sacrifices for the people. They would bring the animal, he would make the sacrifice. And then once a year, there was this day of atonement where uh, all of the sins of the people were, were going to be forgiven based upon his own ritual cleansing and then going into the most holy place in this tabernacle. And so what our orator is saying is, as he's looked at the life of Jesus, is saying, Jesus has done this for you. He has shed his blood for you. So you don't need to sacrifice animals anymore. He's the perfect high priest. And because of what he's done, he secures for us eternal redemption. Look at verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. 
So how does Jesus secure an eternal redemption? What do we mean by eternal redemption? The fact that you and I can spend eternity with, G- with the Father forever and not need to worry about all of our sin. That you can know that you've been covered. That it, what he's done is enough for you. Now, why blood? Like, blood's, blood's gross. Now, some of us think blood's particularly gross. Some of us are a little bit more okay with blood. But why blood? Well, throughout the scriptures, we, we learn some things about blood and its significance. And, and one of the reasons why blood is that in the scriptures, blood represents life. Leviticus 7, yes, I'm quoting Leviticus. Leviticus 17 verse 11 says, The life is in the blood. So blood represents life. Secondly, why blood? There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. This is what we're going to find out a little bit later in Hebrews 9, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So what the scriptures are telling us is that in order for your sins to be given, blood needs to be shed. A life needs to be taken. And what it's going to say is it's either going to be your life for your own sin or Jesus' life, Jesus' shed blood in exchange for yours. That is the great standing truth of Christianity is either you die and shed your own blood for your life or you trust in Jesus' shed blood for you. So blood represents life. There's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And then thirdly, shed blood expresses the severity of sin. Shed blood expresses the severity of sin. You know, many of us have sort of a perspective of sin. It's like, it's not that bad. It's not like bloodshed. No, I'll just apologize. A lot of people take an issue with Christianity because they make an objection. Is I can't believe in a God who requires the death of his son. Why would I want to serve a God that requires the death of his son? In defense of this, does this not then show how good our God is who makes the most costly provision for us and therefore we can draw near to him If it demands his own son, is it not an incredible sacrifice of what he has done? And so a life is needed to be taken. And so whose life is taken? Father gives the life of his son. It says, I will have my son take your sin upon himself so that you can live eternally and have eternal redemption. An interesting question was asked of Billy Graham. Some of you don't know who Billy Graham is, but Billy Graham was a very prominent evangelist. He hosted these enormous crusades. And somebody asked Billy at one point, they said, Billy, uh, Reverend Billy Graham, uh, what do you wish you preached more about? Is there something that you would have tweaked, that you would have talked more about? He said, I would have talked more about the blood. I would have talked more about the blood. And so we're all kind of like, the blood. May we understand as we reflect upon this blood, that this represents the severity of our sin. Now you might be like, what do I mean by sin? Sin is anything that God says is out of alignment with who he is. 
It's not up to your definition of what sin is. He says, this is my definition. It's unholy. It can't be close to me. And so for you to be close to a holy and perfect God, a life must be taken. Blood must be shed. And so it's either your blood or you trust in Jesus' blood. So Jesus, can I trust you? And Jesus says, yes, you can trust me because I died and shed my blood. See, so your blood does not have to be shed. So that you can have eternal life, you can have eternal redemption, you can have a hope that you can be close to a perfect and holy God for all of eternity. This is crazy. Like, think about what I'm saying for a second, okay? Think about the thing that, for those of you that are Christians, that you say you believe. Jesus died for you. He shed his blood for you. So that you don't have to. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, hear this. You will need to stand before a perfect and holy God one day. And maybe you're struggling with the existence of God. And, and we'd love to talk to you more about that. But, but humor me for a second. You have to stand before a perfect and holy God who says... That he needs a perfect sacrifice, a perfect life. What are you going to say to him? He's going to say, a blood needs to be shed. A life must be taken. And either you take it, or if you're a follower of Jesus, you say, no, Jesus took it for me. He died. His blood was shed. And so what our author is trying to help us understand is that Jesus' blood is superior to the blood of goats and bulls and these things because they were defiled. His blood is perfect. He lived a perfect life so he could stand into the perfect place. It's also showing us that while the sacrificial system of the Old Testament could cover the external actions, they needed a sacrifice to cover their internal hearts. They needed something to cover the inside, their conscience. And this is the, how, why the blood of Jesus has power. Verse 14 of chapter 9. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, pay attention to this, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now we must stop to ask the question, what do we mean by our conscience? Well, your conscience, right? We talk about our subconscious. Your, your conscience tells you things about yourself. It says, I'm bad. I'm good. It's that internal voice inside of your heads. And many of us, if we're honest, we are the hardest people on ourselves. And our conscience constantly tells us bad things about ourselves. If that is the case... Hear what, what the blood of Jesus does. It completely clears your conscience. It purifies your conscience. Now, Charles Spurgeon, he said this about our conscience and how it's cleared. It's the knowledge of our past sin that is purified. So how many of us sit and are like, oh my goodness, what did I just do? So your conscience is cleared from your past sin. Your conscience is also cleared from your current sin with all of its thoughts and desires, and then your conscience is going to be cleared for ongoing contact and evil in the world. 
Do you know anything else in this life that can free you from your conscience than this? The conscience is an awful place to be if you don't like yourself. It's an awful place to be if you're filled with shame. It's an awful place to be if you think that you ought to be beat up more. But what our author is telling us about Jesus is that he purifies our conscience. He wipes the slate clean so we don't need to live in shame about our past, our current, and our futures. It's completely washed clean. Wow. It's amazing. So reason number one, we can trust Jesus because he's the perfect sacrificial high priest who doesn't just stand there and offer somebody else's blood, but who actually lies himself on the altar and sheds his own perfect blood for us. But then reason number two is that Jesus serves as mediator to restore our relationship with the Father and give us an eternal inheritance. This is what we're told in verses 15 to 22. Now this mediator conversation or this mediator identity is a really unique one and it's an interesting one but it's something that we've been talking about so what do we mean by mediator you know and what a mediator is and what a mediator does is they mediate between two groups of people to help come to a resolution to help restore or maybe even reconcile relationship you can maybe think of a time that you are in such challenge with another human being that you ask somebody to come and kind of sort of help you work it out, right? Well, the scriptures tell us, and what our author is making the point here, is that Jesus serves as a mediator between God the Father and us. That we need one. That we need a mediator. Now, the interesting thing about a mediator is that a mediator needs to serve both parties. And so you ask the question, well, what, 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 what was the side sort of, of God the Father that needed to be mediated? And the side that needed to be mediated about God the Father was that in the Old Testament, there are a couple of covenants that are given. God's uh, promise of a relationship with the Israelite people. And his first covenant to Abraham, he said, I am going to bless the nations and the world through you. And you see, he promises this nation, and Abraham is really old at the time, and so he's like, how's this going to happen? But as some of us know the story, he promises that Abraham's descendants will be his people, and he will be their God. Now, in this particular covenant, there's not any really expectation from the people other than circumcision. But there's not really an expectation. So he just says, no matter what, I'm committing myself to you. Right? It's the same sort of thing if I were to come up to you today and say, hey, no matter what happens, I'm committing myself to you no matter what. Right? It's the sort of thing that you tell somebody that you're marrying. No matter what happens, till death do his part, I'm with you. Right? Now, God then makes another covenant with the Israelites. And it's a covenant that he makes with them at Sinai. And God says, I will be in relationship with you, but here are the agreement. Here's the agreement. You need to also hold up your end of the bargain. All right? And so if you do these things, I will stay in relationship with you. Well, isn't it interesting? <laughs> it's no surprise. It's like what some of us are like, okay, you know, last Sunday I heard this thing, or at my missional community we talked about it, and I was like, I had all the best intentions, but then I, I left, and oh, no, it happened again, right? 
And God gives them this other covenant, and this is an interesting one, in that he says, okay, you, this is what I want you to do. You obey the law, and then, you know, we'll stay in relationship. Well, it's no surprise to God, but they aren't able to hold up their end of the bargain. Right? This is another covenant. So I'm to tell you, like, okay, Jeremiah, I'm going to be committed to you unless you do the X, Y, and Z. Right? And Jeremiah could go, okay, sounds good. Now let's say tomorrow he really messes up on X, Y, and Z. I then have the right, based on my covenant with him, to say, okay, dude, see you later. But remember what happened in the first covenant. I told him that I wasn't going to go anywhere no matter what. So it's really interesting that God does this, right? So think about this. He makes a a covenant with them and doesn't expect anything from them. Then he makes a second covenant with them in which he does expect things from him. But if he decides to leave after the second covenant, he sort of dealt himself in a bit of a a bad hand to say that he's already made one covenant that said he wasn't going to go anywhere. So God, the Father, needs a mediator as well. So why does God, the Father, make these two covenants? Because he wants to save us. Because he had Jesus in mind. He says, they're not going to get to see my incarnate son. So I'm going to make the second covenant with them because I know that they're going to disobey me. But then I'm going to get to send my own son who's going to serve as a mediator between me and them because I love them and I want them to be in relationship with me. So what does this tell us about the gift of salvation? It's a free gift of God. That when God was making these covenants, he saw in the future and said, I'm going to send my own son to die for these rebellious people that I know are going to be rebellious. And that's why I'm going to make the second covenant, because i got to show them that they're, they're going to mess up. They're going to do something that they know that they ought not to do, but then I'm going to show them that no matter how far they go, no matter how far they run, they can never get so far away from me that I can't save these people. Maybe some of you need to hear that for the first time today. No matter how far you are, no matter how much you hate yourself, no matter how many lies somebody has told you about yourself and that now you're sitting in believing, no matter what, you're never too far from the grace of God provided through his own begotten son, Jesus. And he loves you and he wants to have a relationship with you and he's made a way to have a relationship with you. And then... He gives you an eternal inheritance. Now, I don't know what sort of inheritance you're sort of looking forward to. Uh, For some of us, we realize it's not going to be much. For others of us, we're like, you know, it's going to be a fairly decent inheritance. You have an eternal inheritance from the Father. You don't have to worry because you have this eternal inheritance forever with God that everything that Jesus has done for you, you now have. You know, if you're, if you're ever sort of feeling a little bit nervous about maybe it's finances or whatever it might be, you have a secure, eternal inheritance. You know, what somebody thinks about the end or what's going to happen at the end of their life changes how they act in the present. What do you think is going to happen at the end? 
Do you recognize the internal inheritance that God has given, that he's acquired for you? So this is the second reader. He's he's a mediator. He has restored a relationship between ourselves and God. But then a third reason is found in the last section of verses, verses 23 to 28. And that you can trust Jesus because Jesus represents us before the Father once and for all and will one day return to save those who are waiting for him. And we read here that Jesus goes before the Father in heaven. Why in the world did he need to go before the Father in heaven? The answer is that in the sanctuary of heaven, this is where true blood is required. This is where the actual, this is where the actual work of redemption is done through Jesus and his blood, which provides for us a relationship with God in this life and secures a place for us in heaven. This is what Richard Phillips writes. Before Christ went into the heavens, having died on the cross and been raised from the dead, there was no way for sinners to have fellowship with holy God. But when our great high priest enters into heaven with his own saving blood, everything changed forever for those who come to God through him. We're told that this mediation, this representation, it happened once for all. Once for all. Jesus doesn't need to go back. It happened once for all. So here's the question. Do you trust that what Jesus has done is enough for you and that it truly is once for all? One of the ways that I know that I don't trust this is when I live into that perfectionist mentality and I say, I need to do it my way so that I can justify me. And and God stops me and says, do you trust my sacrifice once for all? So, Consider that question, okay? Do you trust that what Jesus has done for you is enough before Father God in your standing with him? Is it enough? And can you trust him? The second part of that is that Jesus will one day return to save those who are waiting for him. Hebrews 9, verse 27. And just as it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Notice what this is saying. You die once, and then comes judgment. You don't get another shot. You die once, and then comes judgment. This stands in the face of reincarnation or karma. This says you die Then comes judgment. And God is a just judge. 
But notice what it says. If you are waiting for Jesus, if you are looking forward to his return because you've trusted him, you have no reason to worry. Because you will stand before a just judge and he won't see you. He'll see his perfect son. But if you have not trusted in his perfect son, you will need to stand before that just judge and you will need to represent yourself. But for those of us that are eagerly waiting for Jesus, he promises us his return. I don't know about you, but life is really hard. Right? There's a lot of good things. There's a lot of really good food in the world. Right? You love good food. There's a lot of good relationships that you can experience. But then there's a lot of stuff that goes on in this world that's painful. Broken relationships. You think of lack of justice in our world. You, you watch the news and you look at what's going on in Syria right now. And you're like, this isn't good. You think about the way that the, 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 the powerful overtake the weak. You think about the injustice and the pain of addiction in life. It's like, we need hope. And so here is the Christian hope. Jesus is going to return. And he's going to restore and he's going to redeem. And God the Father will serve as a just judge. If you're ever in your life struggling, I just want justice. Hear this, one day there will be justice. But here it also is a warning that you cannot escape the justice of a just God. And the only way to stand before him enough and complete and perfect is through trusting in his perfect son given for you once and for all. This is the great hope of the Christian faith. Not of us, but to your name be the glory. Thank you for what you have done. So how will you respond to this? Can Jesus be trusted? Jesus is the perfect sacrificial high priest who dies and sheds his blood for us. Jesus serves as a mediator to restore our relationship with the Father and give us an eternal inheritance forever and ever. And Jesus presents us, represents us before the Father in heaven once and for all and will one day return to save those who are waiting for him. You know about you, but this, this, this feels heavy. I'm, I'm learning a lot these days, and some of you know this, about emotional health. Okay? What an emotionally healthy person is able to do is to stop at any point in their day and say, how am I feeling? Now, as I've told some of you, I really struggle with that exercise. It's like, what do you mean, how am I feeling? There's a job to be done. There's perfect things to take care of. <laughs> Yet stopping and saying, how am I feeling? Because God made you both a thinking being, but he also made you a feeling being. And I don't think what we do as human beings, especially in this insane 
culture of moving from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing? Do we ever really have the freedom or are given the opportunity just to stop and reflect upon, I am a human being made in God's image with feelings, and so I need to just sit in how I'm feeling right now. So, how are you feeling? As you hear what Jesus has done, how are you feeling? Maybe you're feeling overwhelmed. Wow, that's a lot to take in. Maybe you're feeling bored. You've been sitting here now for like 35 minutes. I'm bored right now. Maybe you're feeling lost. I don't know what to do with all this. Maybe you're feeling shame. Wow, I'm hearing it again. You did it for me. Why am I so bad? You know what the the benefit of being able to identify your feelings is? Is you know where you need to invite Jesus to do work. You know that as we turn now to respond, you know what you need to ask him to touch in your life. If you don't, then it's just like a thinking mental exercise of like, okay, cool, three reasons why I ought to trust Jesus. Oh, I'm still struggling to do it, but oh, well, there's three good reasons. Rather than saying, you know what? No, I'm feeling overwhelmed. Jesus, I'm feeling overwhelmed. I need you to help me in this feeling because I don't know how to get out of it. Or Jesus, I need to help you because I'm going to shame Yet I'm hearing that I don't need to go to shame. So Jesus, help me in my shame. Or Jesus, I am feeling bored. Jesus, help me not be bored. Or meet me in my boredom. Or Jesus, I've never heard of this incredible gift before. So I'm sort of feeling nervous because this is like the first time that maybe I'm really wanting to like commit my life to following you, but I'm nervous and anxious about what that could actually look like. Jesus, help me in my nerves. Help me in my anxiousness. May I learn to trust you. May I learn to give these things over to you. And may I not just continue to go through this intellectual exercise, but may I actually sit and might I actually rest in the fact that you have done everything necessary for me to spend eternity with you once for all. Let's pray. So Heavenly Father, I thank you that when you gave covenants that you knew people could not keep, you gave them with Jesus in mind. I can't even fathom. And so I feel very lost and powerless in just the thought that you saw so far in advance that you orchestrated it all from the very beginning, that you would figure out a way and that you knew that there was a way to make yourself right with us through the perfect sacrifice of your son. God, Hebrews is a challenging book from a, <laughs> for those of us that live in this culture because it's at times a different language. It's, it talks about blood, and many of us don't really like blood. 
But God, I thank you for the implications of what this text actually means. And so, God, I pray that maybe there's someone in this room today, God, that has never trusted in you, Jesus, for their salvation. May they, by the conviction of your Holy Spirit, hear that they will one day need to stand before a perfect and holy God and that there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood, without the taking of a life. And I pray, God, that they would see that rescue has been made possible through Jesus. And that by simply trusting in your son and committing them life to following you, that they will be able to one day, when they do die, that they can stand before you and that your son will stand before them and they will be declared innocent, not guilty. Their conscience has been cleaned. And then we will spend eternity with you forever. And that makes me feel overwhelmed because I have no way of describing forever. But I'm sure it's a super long time. So God, as we respond now, may those of us that that need to just sit, sit. May those of us that need to stand and respond, might we do that? May those of us that need to come to the front and ask somebody else to encourage us, may we do that? But Jesus, may you help us understand how we're feeling and I pray that you would meet us there. Whatever those things may be, may we be honest about where we're at. In your son's name we pray, amen.